was the 1980s the best decade for comic books? Don't touch that dial. We'll find out in just a moment. Once again, it's time for the Idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and co-host, Ray. What up? How are we doing today? Was that charged up enough for you? That's, I knew if we didn't play the intro before yeah. we started talking, you wouldn't be pumped Then we up. just have to fake it, yeah. I don't yeah. know, there's something about it. Gets me charged up. It is a pretty know. good it's, 80s style. It's, it's, yeah, it's the 80-ishness of it, I guess, yes. and the guitars. In a moment, we'll be speaking with Hoche Anderson, comic book writer, illustrator extraordinaire, about whether the 1980s were the best decade for comic books. But first, eight days news. What's up? First, I know you had something on your mind you wanted to talk uh, about. Yeah, let's hit the let's hit my story first. This is a pretty pretty easy one to do. Uh, Hulkamania, Hulk Hogan. You, you yeah. are aware who you, Hulk Hogan is. That right? was like probably the last time I listened to or watched rather wrestling was. Uh, yeah, the, the icon of 1980s I, I was a Hulkamaniac. Wrestling. Yeah, everyone was a Hulkamaniac. He might not be your favorite, but he yeah. is definitely the poster boy for 1980s wrestling. And he's also now the poster boy for uh, private sex tapes. But actually, <laughs> did you know that they offered him the George Foreman grill first, and he turned it down for a blender? Wait a second. This is so Did confusing. Did you know that? In the context of me talking about the sex tape that came out with him, I'm so confused. I tried to gloss over that and go to something oh, more see. family friendly. Okay, gotcha. Um, no, so you mean to pitch? It would uh, have been the Hulk Hogan grill. Oh. But he didn't get it. I see. So they pitched it to Foreman and it just took off. You know, what you're sort of um, crushing is my, I don't want to say childhood. I don't remember how old were we when the George Foreman grill came out. Was that in the 90s? I, I don't remember when okay. it came out, but he, it still chaps his ass that he didn't take the, the grill instead of the blender. I think the most shocking thing is revealing George Foreman didn't invent the George <laughs> Foreman grill. I mean, that's But anyways, the actual 80s news of this story is that WWE 2K20 is coming out. And they are putting Hogan back in the game. He's been gone for five years. He's going to be a playable character again. I'm surprised he was in it five years ago. That's surprising to me. Well, when you're an icon of wrestling, eventually they take you out. They put you back in. Because if I get this game, I want to be Hogan. Yeah. I want to do the whole hand to each ear (laughs) and then rip the shirt off and get the crowd jacked. Oh, yeah. What if that? They must have that. They have to have that. At least a cut scene or something. Yeah. Did Hogan have a a special move? I don't remember that... um, we had so many people um, that I know had. He did a, a huge leg drop. Okay, but then he had that body slam of uh, Andre the Giant at yes, WrestleMania One. Classic. That's, that's just huge for wrestling. But then also, yeah. he was Thunderlips in Rocky Three. Yes. So also an amazing actor. <laughs> that that proves it right there. I was very excited about that because of uh, because of Hulk was in it because that was the time when I was watching wrestling. Right, and, and that's the one where we had also had Mr. T. Yes, in that one as well. So that was you know had the A team and had uh, a wrestler that I loved and, and Rocky already loved. That was a culmination of awesome things. Yeah, I'm not ashamed to admit that I just rewatched this movie like two days ago to make sure that oh. it was as good as I remembered, uh-huh. and it stands the test of time. That may be the best Rocky, right? Rocky three, I think. Uh, I don't, it's tough, man. All the Rockies are good. All the Rockies? Tommy Gunn Rocky? You I, know what? Compared to what they put out today, yeah, uh, okay. I'll take the Tommy Gunn Rocky right. over some of the crap I've watched lately that are new movies. Yeah, uh, true. You know, I tried playing, uh, I had one of the earlier uh, wrestling games that came out. I don't remember if it was a PlayStation 1 or something, but it was hard to play. But oh. I, I'm not terribly great at those kinds of uh, yeah, I, I play it with my seven-year-old, and uh, routinely we go about 50-50 on the <laughs> So either he's awesome for being seven, <laughs> or you're less coordinated than a seven, or about as coordinated. I usually complain that there's so many buttons while we're well, playing. Well, yeah, that reminds me, you love 80s games because you got your joystick, and maybe three buttons was your max that you said. Yeah, I'm good with three buttons, like. unless it's a football game. Then I'll, yeah. I'll actually learn the button system. But other than that, I don't care to learn it. Just cool. give me the fire button. That's all now, I need. Speaking of video games, there's something that I wanted to talk about, which isn't necessarily 80s news, but it is sort of. There are a couple of new apps that are fairly new that are actually 80s 
themed inspired yeah, by they, the 80s. They're games that inspired by the just again show that how much the 80s has influenced our culture and it's just still awesome. So one of them and they're both created by the same designer whose whose name escapes me now, but I'll, I'll put it on our, our website. Um, but I'll tell you the names of the games so you can go and find them and check them out. One of them is Super 80s World. And in short, what the story is, is someone has erased or is in the process of erasing all of our great memories of the 1980s. And you play a character, Don Camaro. I mean, that is a perfect name. It sounds like a character you would yeah, have created. Well, once again, if you listen to the last episode, right. it would be right at home yes. on the, the game we just played. Side by side with Torpedo Johnson. Don Camaro yeah. could have been his partner. But Don Camaro is, you play as Don Camaro and you're racing through these different boards trying to collect all these bits of nostalgia from the 80s. So different movies and different video games, all these things. And one of the things that's really cool to me, really exciting to me about it is, well, the music's awesome because it's very 80s, but also collecting these things where you actually see the names of the movies. And every now and then you'll see a name of a game or a movie. You think, geez, every, someone else remembers that? That was like my favorite, <laughs> you know, whatever. And then the other game by the same developer, again, is another game called Chopper Commando, which, again, has this very 80s feel. In fact, it's monochromatic, so it's almost a throwback to playing a game on your, you know, your first uh, PC, um, where you, it's a side-scroller where you fly a helicopter and uh, shoot at things and avoid things. And in any case, music is amazing. Again, very 80s. And the characters, again, actually, the, the one main character looks similar to Don Camaro, I think, or one of the other. So um, in any case... Check out those two games. Again, proof, further proof that the 80s are alive and well. Uh, check out Super 80s World and Chopper Commando. They're available uh, in the Apple Store now. I think they're coming for Android sometime soon. So are we done with 80s news then so we can move on to some well, comic book news? Okay, so two things I wanted to mention. You know, Again, 80s news slash comic book news because we're going to be talking about comic books today uh, and talking a little bit later with comic book writer and illustrator Hoche Anderson. Um, but w- one thing I did want to mention to you a couple of weeks ago was, you know, we, we have the 30th anniversary of Batman 89. It's not called Batman 89, but just the Batman, Michael Keaton, Batman, Tim Burton, Batman came out. And as you know, we've got a brand new Batman coming, I think in 2021, played by Robert Pattinson. I don't know. What are your initial feelings about he's, that? He's not my first choice for Batman. Do you have a first choice? I do. Bruce Campbell. Okay. <laughs> well, but yeah. but if I'm going with a younger Batman, yes, that was the plan for, yes, for Matt. Reeves. I would I would have 100% put my money on Zac Efron. Okay. He's amazing and he's funny and he would have been a great Batman. So, hmm. you know what? Get on that. <laughs> get on that. People fire Robert Pattinson. Get him out of there, get Zac in there. So, I did see a poll uh, on the Hollywood Reporter some time ago when they first announced uh, Robert Pattinson in it. They, they surveyed um, people about America's favorite Batman actor. Now, it's not every Batman is not on here. So Adam West is not on here. And, That's a travesty right and there. And Robert Pattinson is not on here. But Christian Bale, Michael Keaton, Ben Affleck, George Clooney, Val Kilmer are on here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who do you think is America's favorite Batman according to this poll? I'm going to say America voted for Bale. Yeah, that's right. Christian Bale. But I would vote for Michael Keaton. Yes, me too. And they actually polled pretty closely, Christian Bale 39% and Michael Keaton 38%, which with then uh, George Clooney, Ben Affleck, and Val Kilmer falling in behind in that order. And they, you know, it drops down to 19, 18, and 17%. So very quickly, those three fall off. Um, What was surprising to me, maybe, you know, the Bale thing is kind of, I guess I would have suspected or expected, was America's favorite Catwoman actress, according to this poll. So you've got Michelle Pfeiffer, Halle Berry, and Anne Hathaway. Who do you think is America's favorite Catwoman actress? I'm going to go with Hathaway. You would think, maybe, or even Michelle Pfeiffer, but no. Halle Berry polled at 42%. Now, Michelle Pfeiffer was at 41%, but yeah. I mean, that movie is regarded as one of the worst movies ever made, I'm pretty sure. I watched that. I got it from the library, so I watched that about six months ago again. What? I did. Why? Just what? <laughs> That's 80s news right there. Why? Because sometimes I like to just watch movies to find out if they were as bad as I remember. And okay. that thing sucked and was actually as bad as I remember. Yeah. I haven't seen it, and it's as bad as I remember. Yeah. From the trailer, it was I can bad. save you the trouble. Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to see it. And then finally, America's Favorite Joker, which leads into what you wanted to talk to. Yes. So they were asked about, in chronological order here, Jack Nicholson, uh, Heath Ledger, and Jared Leto. Who do you think is the America's favorite oh, Joker? I would, I would say Heath is obviously the best Joker out of those three. Yes, Heath Ledger with 60%, Jack Nicholson 58 and Jared with uh, 18%. Speaking of Jokers... I, I do want to talk about the Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie. Right. Um, so a new trailer just dropped. Yeah, yes, the official final trailer finally dropped, and the movie actually looks really good. Yeah. 
But they keep talking about how it humanizes him for the first time. He has a family man whose world goes bad. But I got proof right here that we can go back to the 80s. Okay. In the comic book, Batman the Killing Joke. Sure. He's a family man, a failed comedian. Right. And that's how he ends up in the trouble and ends up being the Joker. So the story was already done. Well, in, in fairness to Todd Phillips, as you know, Martin Scorsese produced it, so it draws a lot on Taxi Driver and uh, King of Comedy, which, you know, King of Comedy is also about a guy who's trying to be a comedian and not succeeding and winds up kidnapping the host of, essentially, The Tonight Show to force him to have him. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool yeah. movie. Yeah, that's a good one. And But you're right, also The Killing Joke. It's very similar in that sense, certain aspects of it, certainly. Yeah. So in my opinion, they're going to have to to live up to The Killing Joke, which is a great comic book. Yeah. Because when I was thinking about this episode, I was sitting, I sat down and I said to myself, what were the comic books that I really liked in the 80s? Right. And that was the first one I thought of. Yeah. And then I had to go back and make sure it was made in the 80s. <laughs> and it was. So. And did you read it in the 80s? I did. Okay. Because a lot of my friends are into comic books and when somebody said, you really have to see this, I would check it out. But yeah, um, that is disturbing. It's got to be the darkest Batman comic Yeah, there's by a long shot. There's one or two that I could think of that may rival it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, yes, you're right, though. Yes, it's definitely among the darker comic book stories. Yeah, that, that's definitely a dark one. So as I was sitting there thinking, and I, re- I didn't read Wolverine in the 80s. Yeah. But I do remember a lot of people loved Wolverine in the 80s. Yes. Because he was like an anti-hero, which we hadn't seen a lot of in comics or movies up to that point. You had heroes and you had villains. Yeah. And then that's the Wolverine thing, I think, kicked in the anti-hero movement that was coming as we move forward. Yeah, there was, a, f- I guess, a few people come to mind in comics in the 80s that were sort of like that. Punisher's another mm-hmm. big one, but y- y- you're right. And, and, and actually, uh, comic books just generally are usually um, sort of at the forefront of storytelling, you know? We're seeing characters that we don't see in films till years later or, you know, tropes and ideas. So, yeah, it's not surprising that we would have that. Yeah, but uh, the, the, the comic book that I read more than any other comic book in the 80s is Gru the Wanderer. Okay. I, I know Gru. I can picture Gru. I don't think I've ever read Gru. I love that comic book. Yeah. It's basically Conan the Barbarian right. done as a you know cartoon character, and he's got a right. dog, and everything he does is just, he just messes up everywhere he goes. Uh-huh. But I'd say I've, I've read that 150% more than any other comic book I've ever read. Right. Just love that one. But then I had to look it up and go, was this written in the 80s? Because <laughs> that was what I wasted a lot of time this week was. Is, did this really happen did, in the 80s? Was this really an 80s comic book? Or did it, was it from, no, it had to be 80s because it was Conan. So it had to be 80s. But then I'd argue with myself. You know, yeah. you know how you, you, you always talk to yourself, yes, right? of course. Everybody yeah. does. Right. So that's We're what not did. crazy. You're crazy. No, you're crazy. But then the, uh, the other comic book that I ended up getting into, and this is a great story. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah. The black and white comics. Sure. My buddy loved these things. So he would bring them to school, mm-hmm. and we would read them. And the only way you could tell the characters apart in the original black and white was their right. weapons. Right. Because they all looked the same. So the movie came out, and he's like, we have to go see this movie. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, hell yeah, I'm going, man. Just the turtles. Yeah. These are good. So we get to the theater. And this theater is full of kids. I'm looking around going, <laughs> what the hell's going yes. on? So the movie starts, and our jaws just hit the floor like, <laughs> this is not like the comic uh, book. Yes. I mean, it's similar. Yep. But yeah, these kids are screaming. It was horrible. I love that movie. It's fun. You know, I didn't read the comic so much as you did, um, but I, I also went to the movie as an older I guess. I don't remember when yeah, it came we out. We would have been in high school. In fact, I remember being in college and seeing, I guess it was the third sequel with my best friend <laughs> in college, my roommate. Yeah. We went and saw it in a theater in town. We were like only two adults. We yeah. might have been the only two people there. But I loved it. I loved that Jim Henson, you know, animatronic. Well, it, 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 yes, it actually ended up being a good movie. But you have to also factor in the context of we were both metalheads in high school. Sure. So we walked in with these black leather jackets and these Metallica <laughs> t-shirts and our long hair, and there's just all these screaming brats everywhere. Yeah. It was horrible. Today, you would, uh, you know, someone would profile you. Like, Which, we need to worry about those two guys. This actually reminds me, we also went to see um, 
the, the Wayne's World movie together. Okay. And while I was there, I had a constant barrage of, look, <laughs> it's him. <laughs> Okay, so you got to picture Ray's got long blonde hair at this time, dressed like yes. a rock star. I actually, yes. And I didn't get mad because I was like, yeah, I kind of see it. Right. Yeah, that's funny. Did you, you probably didn't know at the time, and maybe you know now, because I, I know you've watched the Daredevil series on Netflix. Oh, oh yes, yes, I know okay. this. All right, very good. Yes. But you know what? Why don't you tell that? Yeah, so I guess... I, I've talked a lot on this one, I so. guess, in short, I was just going to comment, you know, for those who don't know that, it's interesting to me that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles started out as a parody of Daredevil, and it's almost, there's like one-for-one things. The enemy in uh, Daredevil is known as the hand, and in the enemy in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is the foot. Stick is Daredevil's mentor. Splinter is the Teenage Mutant uh, mentor and so on and so forth. I didn't know that till much later. Yeah, I, yeah, I found, I figured it out much much later down the road. But um, yeah, that was all intentional, right? And they even make mention of it that um, the same accident that caused Daredevil to have his powers is what gave the Turtles and Splinter their powers. Also, you know, I didn't remember that, but I do remember that the origin of them in the comic books is different than in the movie, right? There is there Correct. isn't the ooze with the. Uh, um, they're not real turtles that fall into ooze or whatever it is. No, they're uh, they're created in the same accident right. that the Daredevil right. character comes from. And then because the writers right. loved it so much, and I think they were smoking pot or something right. together, <laughs> and they were just laughing. Or and, separately. or se- Well, no, they were in the same room <laughs> when they were giggling and laughing like little children, and they started doing the stick splinter thing and i can only imagine they were either really drunk or really high and they're just sitting there <laughs> writing this stuff down like you know what it'd be really cool if we yes. just like completely ripped off daredevil but actually there's a bunch of comic books that rip them off too sure there's one about hamsters and a bunch of other well ones. they say what all art is derivative or something like that. there's no original ideas right they say they also say good artists create great artists steal right uh, yes and actually, if you look at the history of Marvel and DC, there's so many times that it seems clear that Marvel stole, it seems, and there's people who've, who've done papers and, you know, YouTube videos on this better than I will right now, but seem to have copied characters straight out of uh, a DC character. Um, I didn't read comics myself in the 80s very much. For, for you, like you're saying, it was sort of hit or miss. My buddies were really into it. I had one friend who was so into the X-Men and loved Wolverine. Uh, in particular, I didn't really discover it to the early '90s um, as a to to you know read them um, you know regularly. Yeah, the only new comic I've read since like 1989 would be The Walking Dead. I think I've read uh, 116 of those or something. Whatever. Yeah, I'm up to that point, but. So, yeah, my comic book friends don't yell at me because it's the only one I read, but I had to know just the difference between that and the shows. You know, it, you know okay, so I'm going to tell this story, and maybe I'll take it out because it's clear that I'm just trying to crowbar this in. <laughs> no, no, crowbar, crowbar it's good. Right. But so in the early 90s, I started reading uh, comic books again because I wanted to get into them. So, uh, you know, I was an actor working in New Jersey and in New York at the time, and so to, to pass time on the subway, because I was still a young adult and a man-child, when I would hit the newsstand waiting for the subway, I could either get the newspaper or I could get a comic book. So I decided, <laughs> I'm going to get into comic books, right? I'm going to rediscover this. So I started reading Batman and Superman again, but I got into it most regularly and routinely for, for, you know, for months and, I guess, years for a little while after that was with the death of Superman, which they did to reinvigorate life into Superman because... Nobody cared about Superman anymore, anymore because you couldn't kill the dude. I mean, right, you got yeah. your kryptonite, but... Yeah, if you can't kill him, what's the point? What's the threat to him, right? So I'm wor- working at this theater and um, reading uh, one of those issues of the death of Superman. And a, a woman who I'm going to be in the show with is talking to me about, about this. And her name is Dana. And she says, and Dana says, um, so you're into comic... We, we had just met. So you're into comic books. I said, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. She said, what are you reading? I show her I'm reading Superman. <laughs> You like Superman in particular? I said, oh, I love Superman. Okay. So I don't until later realize that that's Dana Reeve, Christopher Reeve's wife. Oh. Who I'm in the play with. She never, of course, says that. You know, ultimately we become friendly and friends. And um, ultimately we act in a couple of plays together. Um, At least two plays together. Three, two or three plays together. So, yeah. She she was a, uh, a very sweet, just amazing, wonderful uh, and talented uh, woman, but I'll always, I don't know. Again, I crowbarred that in there. No, that's just a great, share of memory. leave that in because that's a great crowbar. Okay. Name drops are awesome. <laughs> 
we got to have the sound, a sound effect of a crowbar <laughs> when someone works a story. Yeah. Clearly. Hey, but, I've, I've shoehorned some stories in go. too, buddy. I got to meet him ultimately too, because he would come to the rehearsals and he came to the shows. Unfortunately, both of them have passed away since, as you know. Um, but, um, and I got to tell him how, how much he, he meant to me, but and actually, this is like another name drop here. I got to cut these all out. No, you cannot cut out any name drops. So in the acting company with me at the time is Peter Dinklage. Uh, I spent the summer uh, reading uh, the uh, the death, was the summer or the fall? I guess it was the mid to late summer, uh, fall into the fall uh, of the year. Um, reading the, the death and return of Superman with, with Peter. Peter, and I, that's what we did uh, that summer backstage. I think comic books came out, I want to say they came out twice a week back then. Uh, I may be wrong about that. But anyway, we would go to the comic book store and just so ready on the days they would come out, just so eager to get the next issue because you had to wait for them to come out to see how the story continued, you know? But anyway, there you go. Since you bring up Peter, yeah, um, we talked about the uh, the Batman stuff. Yeah. I want him to play Matt Hatter. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can see that. Sure. I think he's the only person who could do it justice. Wow. That's interesting. So yeah. I got it in here first. Okay. It's on air. It's recorded. <laughs> well, there is a rumor that there's going to be maybe six villains in the next Batman movie. Yeah, well. Based he, on... He's going to get his own spinoff out of that thing if he gets it. Well, but Mad Hatter is on the list of the six. It may be a fake out, but yeah, there's some production notes that were leaked that include those folks. So, but in any case, time to move on. Unfortunately, I'm going to miss our interview today, but I'm looking forward to hearing it. I'll be back for the wrap up, though. Well, you'll be missed. In a moment, I'll be back to speak with our guest, Hoche Anderson. Our guest today is the accomplished writer and illustrator of many eye-popping, thought-provoking comic books, including I Want to Be Your Dog, King, and Godhead. Next year, he'll make his directorial debut with the premiere of his feature film, Le Corbeau, an action-adventure-slash-supernatural movie with an 80s aesthetic. Please welcome Ho Che Anderson. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. I'm so grateful to speak to you on, for so many reasons. One, you know, I'm a fan of your work, but in addition to that, when thinking about the concept of a, of a show, I thought, you know what, let's let's set out, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but really, to prove that the 1980s was the best decade objectively for, for pop culture. We're not <laughs> talking opinion. Objectively, yes. Nice. Your, the piece okay. that you wrote, I think in 2017, it was, you know, you could be the host of this show, certainly with regard to comics, <laughs> at least. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and so, so folks know um, that are listening... Ho wrote a, a piece that, I mean, essentially it starts off saying the 80s was the best decade for comic books, you know. And um, that is true. so I'm excited to talk to you. Now, the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, though, is sort of teased in what I just said, because I know your piece starts off with, and I think ends similarly with saying that, um, you know, or, or at some point you sort of concede that, hey, this is the this is opinion. It's based on nostalgia. I think you say, I'm an old man looking back. And... <laughs> But what, but what you set out is really, again, it's sort of like our show. You set out a case for uh, an objective, I think, argument that the 80s was the best. We can go through those different points, but you touch on a, a, a number of different things that can't be argued, I think. Um, do you still feel that uh, the 80s was the best, but only in a subjective way? Um, yeah. I mean, they're the best. Absolutely. For me, they are the best because, uh, you know, they're the age, they're the, the 80s were the age that I came of age. And, you know, where I, my aesthetics were sort of so not solidified, but um, where I really started to understand who I was and the things that I wanted to talk about and the kind of uh, storyteller that I wanted to be. And, you know, all of this was happening between basically between 19, let's say, 83 and, and 89 were those formative years for me. Um, definitely the 70s came into effect. But uh, the 80s were that were, was really crystallized for me. So I'll always have a certain nostalgia for them and, and right. a reverence for them. So, and, and, and that said, and again, obviously I'm not going to argue that your opinion is, is, is objective. I, I, I say that about myself, it is. But what's great about your piece is then you go to set out some of the wonderful ways in which, you know, nostalgia put aside, you know, again, it's hard to, I think, argue that the 80s weren't 
the best for everything, including comics. And um, we could talk about some of those. Sure. You know, first you set up, what, what's one great, great thing about it is for folks that don't know anything about comics, you get a little abridged history of comics. Um, it's really abridged, but but to get a sense of at least that, you know, comics had a heyday in the, in the 40s following World War II, and then started to struggle again, I guess, you know, Catch, getting us caught up to the 80s, struggle again, you know, leading into the 70s. Sure. Um, and, and there's lots of different reasons for that. And it seemed like a, a perfect, at the time, uh, it was a perfect mix of why I guess that happened. But the flip side of that is, and you use the word at some point in your piece, alchemy, which sort of, for me, tied together this idea that, or ties together for the idea for me that the 80s was this great nexus for technology and creativity yeah. and uh, you know, you know, business in such a way that everything could be better than it was. And, and same with comics. So I'm hoping maybe we could touch base on some of those things like, um, like, like the technology. So what was it about technology and comics in the eighties that we didn't have, let's say prior to that? Is there some of, some of the points you could mention? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're coming out of a period where comic books were on the cheapest material, available from paper that was essentially provided for them by the mob. Really? Which is a pretty interesting bit of history if you can delve deeper into that. Um, and, 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 you know, printed on the cheapest stock possible by the cheapest methods possible. And even though they had storytellers of, you know, of great skill all throughout the comic book history, um, it was still, you know, kind of regarded as gutter material produced <laughs> on, you know, you know, produced on gutter paper, basically. Right. So, based, and then, and then you had a period in the '50s where uh, comic books were um, experiencing great growth and had uh, a lot of diversity in their subject matter. And then, you know, suddenly faced uh, congressional attack. You know, in the form of uh, uh, first uh, Dr. Wortham and his famous Seduction of right. the Innocent, and then. And then the hearings against uh, comic books, which you know basically got EC shut down and got the whole kind of comic book industry, um, you know, kind of put in the headlights of society, and 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 suddenly found comic books uh, uh, being very afraid and being very conservative in its subject matter. So you go from that where it was almost like, you know, comics were on the verge of being shut down um, in the '60s and the '70s. And then around the 80s, suddenly things start to change where, um, you know, suddenly like better, you know, the, people started to see the value of, of uh, the, the work that was being produced in Europe and, and in Japan and started to bring those sensibilities to North America. And then suddenly you had better printing uh, available and better paper stocks available and all of those factors. And then, and then after so many years of, um, I guess, uh, creators being kind of held back in the kind of subject matter that they could talk about. Um, suddenly there was a kind of an opening of the floodgates where smaller publishers came in and saw the value of better, better printing, better paper stocks, and, and allowing creators to have a bit of a freer reign to kind of express the kind of story that they'd always wanted to tell. Um, and, you know, and then, and then the adoption of uh, printing or, or of, uh, you know, the kind of technologies that were seen in, in, in Europe with, you know, um, with full process color, uh, as opposed to the kind of cheap four color printing that we were getting in North America, getting like right. fully painted comic books on, you know, blue, blue lined, uh, printed, uh, pages. And it was just, uh, it was an explosion. You know, things just sort of seemed to come together in the early eighties and uh, produce this explosion. Right. Pretty, pretty amazing, actually. You know, you, you make me, or you, you remind me that recently on an episode we talked about how um, the, during the 1980s, a lot of the pop culture, especially movies and television, were influenced by the fact that Ronald Reagan ran this campaign of Make America Great Again. And part of that, unlike, you know, sort of similar to what we're hearing today, is this idea that the 50s were better because that, they were, you know, uh, great and pristine and idyllic. And... And the other flip side of that was that they had to demonize the 60s. And so they would say, instead of focusing on uh, all the advances in civil rights, for example, they'd say, oh, there were a lot of riots. And as a result, we had this pop culture that was a hearkening back to the 50s or, you know, a glorified, uh, you know, uh, uh, the excesses in the 80s. Um, but 
but when you talk about comic books and, you know, and, and uh, the, the fact that we had more diversity, more creativity, that the reins were taken off, it seems almost like, it seems different to me. Um, you, what you're describing almost seems that it would be subverting that, you know? I mean, I guess I think, you know, United States at the time in the 80s was, because of those values, I, I guess because of Reagan, you know, running for office, I think of it as more conservative. Mm-hmm, and absolutely. So, Comic seems counter to that. So, were the eighties, or I'm sorry, were the comic books in the eighties still seen as this sort of counterculture or underground sort of media? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, first of all, they're still seen as sort of children's entertainment. They weren't seen as fully valid adult uh, entertainment. So that I think allowed them a certain freedom to kind of fly below the radar and attempt some things that. Uh, had they had a greater spotlight on them at that you know at that time, maybe they wouldn't have had the ability to tackle. Um, I, I can't say that for sure, but that's sort of my that's sort of the suspicion I have. Because if you go back and you look at the press coverage of comics from the '80s, it was still very much in every time a co- uh, a comic book would be uh, talked about, let's say in the mainstream press, it would always be from the perspective of, oh my God. I can't believe it. Comic books have started to grow up. They're not just for kids anymore. I was looking at um, a, a thing called uh, the DC Comics 1986 press coverage, and it's a it's a, a little it's like a publication that puts together all of the all of the press clippings from 1986 wow. um, for obviously for DC, right. and it has so obviously you're going to see like a lot of coverage of Frank Miller's Dark Knight and Shaken's. Sure. Uh, the Shadow and a lot of Watchmen, some Superman stuff, and the first, the first articles that they have in here are all like, here's a, here's the title, Bang Pow Zap, heroes are back, comics <laughs> not just for kids anymore. <laughs> Second, pop culture, comic books for grownups. Wow, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's all the same stuff. Comics are no longer, no longer kid stuff. It's every single article talked about how, you know, they were amazed by the uh, growing maturity within uh, the comic book field. So I think had they had a greater spotlight on them, maybe there would have been more restrictions put on them because they were so kind of still seen as underground um, and and read by so few people. um, They could sort of kind of do, you know, they have the freedom to kind of try different things and and get away with them. Right. And I think, and I remember you mentioned in your piece that um, it wasn't that uh, adults weren't reading comics prior to that. It's that, you know, maybe it was their secret uh, that they, you know, that they kept to themselves. Um, and it wasn't even that, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't even that the comic book stories were necessarily dumbed down because they were intended for children. Because uh, I recall, you know, even some of the early, honestly, I shouldn't say dumbed down, um, before the code, uh, you know, some of the early detective comics in, in Batman, I remember it being fairly, uh, pretty violent. Uh, Absolutely. You know, <laughs> Batman hanging people from a helicopter, that sort of thing. <laughs> I think he and hung a lot of people. Guns on him. Yes, in yeah. guns. Oh, right? he had a he had a body count on him. <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah, yeah. And, and to your point, uh, I'm using your own point to make your point. So, yeah, and I, I, I remember you read it in your piece again that you wrote about how um, this it was an opportunity for um, the uh, creators to tell more sophisticated stories. Uh, in the 1980s, and experiment with more re- more realistic topics. How um, prior to that, uh, things were glossed over with a thought bubble. Um, mm, absolutely. Yeah, you I, agree with yourself. I, I do actually. <laughs> and and the, you're like a wise person said that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that would uh, yeah that would be me. I guess I'm, I'm not even sure anymore. Um, but uh, I mean, and the other thing about the 80s though is uh, I've always felt that it was uh, kind of an era where um, uh, where boundaries were being pushed. Um, I, I remember being, as a kid, every time I'd go to the movies or I'd watch TV, I would very frequently be um, be surprised by some new barrier that had been broken, um, be it in terms of language or, you know, subject matter or, or nudity or whatever. And it seemed like uh, it was an era, even though, uh, it, you know, clearly um, the, the, the pop culture that was coming out of the United States specifically, that's still very conservative, um, by and large, um, there was still, despite that conservatism, I always felt that there was a sort of uh, desire to see just how far um, the envelope could be pushed. And there was a kind of a willingness to allow that envelope to be pushed, which I, I can't see happening in, you know, the 20 you know, in the 2000s um, at all. 
there's just something about that that pocket, that ten year pocket where almost anything was allowed to go. And do you think that means then that we're no longer pushing the envelope or the envelope is just so it's been expanded so far in the 1980s that, you know, what's left to explore? Um, a little bit of that and a little bit of, I think, um, that exploration is probably going less in the mainstream and more, you know, sort of more in the fringes or in the underground. And also, yeah, I think things were pushed to such a, to such an extent, um, uh, you know, in that less woke era that, uh, uh, now, uh, I think, I think when people like kind of look back on, on that period, um, uh, they're kind of appalled by the kind of wanton, uh, expression of hedonism and, and nihilism that was kind of more acceptable in the mainstream culture back then. I think uh, I think there's kind of a, almost maybe a kind of a, a revulsion in, in the mainstream culture today about that kind of thing, and uh, yeah, I think things were pushed so far that they just have to. They've been kind of constrained and constricted for many a year as a response to it. I don't know necessarily if what's going on today is a direct response to what was happening in the '80s, but I feel like it was it was definitely part of um, definitely part of the continuum for sure. You know. It, it, and I don't disagree with you, but um, when I read your your piece and you talked about nihilism and uh, nihilism, 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 um, mm-hmm. and, I, and maybe you talked about it closely after a tie to the idea that part of the eighties, part of living in the eighties, was the constant fear of being melted off the earth by nuclear war. Was that absolutely so? It, were you were you suggesting, and maybe maybe, or if you're not, but you can see whether you confirm this or not, or believe this, is that the, the idea that we could be annihilated at any moment gave us the freedom to live our best lives, so to speak. They weren't our best lives, right? As we look back, and our, our best lives and our, and our worst lives it yes. allowed us to live lives that without uh, you know with a, with a certain amount of uh, you know you just your foot is off the brakes, man. Just yeah. go for it because by tomorrow we could all be a cinder. Pretty, pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in that yeah. sense, yeah, the the art that you're talking about almost reflects that idea that this might be our last day. So, you know, we couldn't push these boundaries. Now, the fact that we made exactly. it safely, you know, past the '80s and beyond, it's it looks, you know, like uh, we do look back that, back at that with some disdain, sort of how I guess, like you said, some uh, revulsion uh, of that time. Um, yeah, I think so. But those fairies were very real, and I think that they've um, made, uh, they've, I feel like in the era of Trump, um, they've definitely, I haven't felt that, that kind of Cold War nuclear terror since, uh, since the 80s came to an end, you know, right. since the fall of the, the USSR. Yeah, yeah, and I think it was on an episode recently we commented, you know, we're taking, we were talking to some uh, a congressman, a former congressman and a politics professor, thinking that so many things from the 80s are back, including the threat of nuclear war. <laughs> it's I not know. just the fashion. <laughs> I could have left that. In. I would have been happy to leave that part in the past, but it's it's made a return. So that, which begs the question, are we going to have a same kind of return to the kind of um, boundary pushing that we had, you know, 30 years ago? But I don't really get the sense that that's going to happen. I sort of get the feeling that we're still kind of continuing on more of a conservative path. Um and and likely to become more so over the next over the next few years. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a question. That's a question that we had raised too. You're right for that same reason. You know. So and, and as you know, um, in the 80s, uh, certainly in the United States, we had uh, you know economic strife. You know, poor people were poor. Middle class was you know getting decimated. People were losing jobs. So all of these things. You know, we can't help but think that these pop culture was a reaction or reflection of that. So you're right. It, it, I guess if the economy gets worse, you know, depending on who you ask, it's starting in that direction. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe in another few years we might have uh, another renaissance uh, of uh, pop culture. Uh, beyond that, though, you know, you made your comment about the 2000s not pushing things. For me, anything beyond the 80s, and I don't think it's just because, you know, I'm almost 50 years old. It's, I think it's because... I think it's objective, like I said early on. The other decades beyond that, I just I can't put on my finger on what they stood for or what was born out of them. Um, sure, there's one or two things, but not with the you know quantity and quality of the 80s, I guess. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, um, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm just trying to articulate how I'm feeling about this. I sort of feel like um, there comes a point where 
I remember reading years ago about how there was a lot of innovation in pop music up until a certain point, up until kind of the 80s, at which point the pop songs, just as an example, um, sort of achieved the form that it would achieve ever, you know, forevermore. You get, uh, you know, uh, opening and then a chorus, or sorry, uh, uh, you <laughs> right. know, whatever. The, was it the A, B, A, B, C, B? A, exactly, thank you. Right. And once that was sort of codified, there was, not that there was nowhere left to go, but it had sort of reached its its ideal form. And right. part of me sort of feels like there was such experimentation going on in that era that every idea had sort of been explored and codified to a certain point and that foundation had finally been built and settled and since then it's more rather than laying new foundation it's more a case of mixing and matching what has already been you know the ground that has already been broken or just kind of building upon that rather than kind of breaking new ground obviously that's not going to be the case in you know, in, in, in every case, but I, I just sort of have that feeling like, uh, things have sort of reached that, that foundation has been kind of laid at this point. So right. all we, all we can do now is sort of build upon that. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, it's, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like that, no, that no. notion that, that there's no original ideas or everything's, uh, everything is derivative, but to the maximum in a sense where we just have maybe little nuances, changes, but like you're saying, the basics well, are sort I, of uh, well, yeah, and and it's not, I don't even mean that in in a pejorative sense. It's like there are only only so many factors that go into go into one's existence. Sure, you know what I mean. So once you sort of, you're never going to get more than than what the planet Earth has to offer us. Aliens are not going to suddenly like arrive tomorrow <laughs> or be made, but it's unlikely that that new element is going to be added to the mix. So until uh, the aliens come in or some interdimensional being, you know, appears before us or God comes down. We've sort of got. We're sort of been stuck with the same basic stuff for, you know, the, the length of the human race, especially to, you know since the dawn of the industrial revolution. So it's it's not surprising that things are going to sort of reach a certain equilibrium at a certain point. You know, right? Yeah, I know. And I think even about um, so you know we're talking. You, you, you can apply this to anything now. But when I think about art, even and you know, and I've read about how you, like many artists. Um, don't have formal training, but you know, just like again, just like many of the greats, you you, you first practiced imitating the artists that you loved. But you know, even though you know, when you look at some, when you look at your work, you can see your influences. You've still put such originality, and you've got your own style that came off of that. I see so many artists today. I feel like didn't get beyond the copying their you know their favorites stage. <laughs> Interesting. You know? I could be wrong. Like you said, there's there, there's definitely exceptions, and those are the folks that go on to for sure. create things that we love. But yeah, for me, um, I'm not. I'm just, for me the the concept of originality is so it's like it's it's so rare, it's so abstract, it's so what does that mean exactly? I, it's not something yeah. I personally really chase. Uh, all I all I personally chase is trying to perfect what few skills I have. So if there's any originality in any of the stuff that I've created, that it's strictly by accident and and honestly not by design. Uh, I think it's I think it's fine to be honest with you. Well, if your entire career consists of of imitating the people that you that you love so long, because and the only reason I say that is because it is your hand that is creating right. whatever it is that you create. You have no choice but to be whatever animal you you are. So that re- originality will present itself just by dint of the fact that you've walked the, the path only you can walk. Right. And, and you know, I know what I said sounded somewhat derogatory about the idea that uh, maybe folks aren't breaking out beyond those um, first steps. But to your point, the fact that you're doing it versus someone else already makes it original in some exactly. sense. So, In some sense. In some sense. I, all I'm saying is I think originality is maybe, is maybe too... Uh, it, it's it, it's a it's an ideal that I think we all strive for, but I I often question I often question how how valuable it is in the grand scheme of things, which is not what I would have a conclusion I would have come to, you know, twenty years ago. Sure, you're probably chasing something very different then, or competing for something or against something that you didn't understand the way you do now. I would think. Yeah, yeah, in a way, yes. So I see uh, more the continuum of a career now than I than I did when I was a younger man. Oh, isn't that one? Are you just finding that out now? I'm only finding that out now that I have a podcast <laughs> at 48 years old. <laughs> it's all about the process. 
It is, brother. It is, man. Every, and everything's a process. You just got to let's live the process. A couple of things actually about the 1980s. Uh, well, at least one thing you made me think of any, something else, because talking about how we look back at the 80s, uh, you know, some folks look back at, with, you know, great reverence and other folks look back and say, you know, what, what were we doing? Um, sure. And you also mentioned, though, that in the 80s was, and I know I read this in your piece, that um, uh, the creators started being able to experiment with more diversity in comics than they had prior for whatever reasons, yes. either commercially or not the code. I guess it wouldn't be the code that would have affected that. But looking back, do you think... Um, we, we, I guess we, I don't know how to say this, that um, we could have done more, we should have done more in the 80s. And again, maybe I'm suggesting there was some downside to the 80s, which sounds like the opposite of our thesis for the show. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to edit this out now. But, I know, you got to watch that, man. <laughs> but with, hey, we could be wrong. But with regard to that, um, uh, yeah, so in Ronin, Ronin... One of my favorite books, yeah, yes. And, and so we see this, you know, we start seeing people in comics as leads that we didn't otherwise see. Um, Absolutely, yes. So, uh, you know, here, I, I, I can frame it in a way that makes the 80s the hero again. What, what, <laughs> okay, go Was ahead. that the beginning of the in, being more inclusive in comics? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, that's a great question, actually. I think I, the honest answer to that is I really have no idea. Um, probably, although I think if we were to examine it, I think we could probably trace the roots, the, 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 the beginnings of diversity in, in comic books, probably to like, um, the underground comics of the sixties and seventies. It's only because they were somewhat more sexually diverse than, than, you know, boy, girl, stick it in baby <laughs> nine months later, nuclear family. It was right. like a lot more weirdness going on, um, in those comic books. Um, so I think, uh, maybe that might've been the first kind of like, uh, crack in the ramparts, but, um, definitely, uh, once you get to the seventies and you get to Frank Miller, like you said, having a Japanese man, uh, I guess <laughs> some debate about that if you read the story, but, um, a Japanese man, an African-American woman as uh, co-leads in a, in a story. Um, and then you've got the work of Howard Chaikin, who's got this multi-ethnic future Chicago, um, you know, selling, you know, you know, like, you know, right. many, many copies per month. Um, yeah, stuff like that. And then the Hernandez brothers, two Mexican, three Mexican-American brothers originally telling stories about their community in Los Angeles and, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, yeah, stuff like that. You know, once, once stuff like that comes out and starts to gain a following and then people from those backgrounds see themselves represented and realize that this is actually a viable, uh, you know, career choice for them, for themselves, uh, stuff like that can't help to have an impact that, you know, is bearing fruit today. You know, and as I think about it, just generally, I, I think we can safely say that comics, again, in a sense, maybe it be, be first or, or be leaders in social uh, activism or, or, or representing different um, lifestyles, etc. Absolutely. Before other areas of pop culture. Absolutely. Um, and it, it's so much easier to do it in comics than it is in in more mainstream, you know, entertainment. Yeah. So it makes sense to do that because there aren't there aren't millions of dollars on the line. There aren't actors and writers' reputations, and directors' reputations at stake. There aren't networks who are afraid of have to be afraid of advertisers against them. It's just right. lines on paper. So there's there's a certain freedom that allows you. Very good. You know, a couple things, and I'll let you go. Just and these are really more just observations. I think it's something. Some of the things that I thought were great in your piece, and and that I've learned in our conversation here today. That um, and even in your, in your work, I mean, you know, Godhead, you know, uh, and and others. It just says so much more. Um, it, just like our conversation says so much more than it does on the surface. There's so much at work there. And even in your piece, I'm going to point out to you something I got out of it that I thought, you know, maybe you, when you wrote it, you didn't realize, but you made this comment about, um, um, I think you said about, Oh, about uh, some of those early comics. Well, maybe it was Ronan in particular that it revealed to you sort of the potential of what comics could be. And, when I read yes, that, I thought it's, absolutely. you know, in a sense, it sounded like it revealed to you the potential of who you could be because of what you ultimately went on to do, obviously. Um, 
That's a fascinating observation. I never thought of it like that before. <laughs> I'm going to send you a bill for that. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to thank you today um, for talking to us because this was a great conversation. And I think ultimately, I think that you've proved the 80s were objectively the best for comics, as is, the, I think, the stated title of your thesis. It is. I'm looking at it right now. But also, you're, you're living proof of that um, because, you know, your influences came out of the 80s, and it's... It's seen in your work, you've, you've, you've said as much, but, and again, maybe that's for nostalgia reasons, but I got to think it's because it was just that good, you know, and had you been an older person when you saw it or a younger person, maybe it would still be the style you'd seek out to grow from, you know? Probably, probably. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I think uh, the, I, people call the aesthetics of the 80s uh, uh, garish and Maybe they were to a certain extent, but I prefer to think of them as just uh, bold and uh, and knowing who they were and uh, being being proud, man. Just being proud of uh, yeah, I don't right. know. Just being proud of like uh, who they were. I, yeah. Yes, if we can say anything, you know, sort of the flip side of that uh, excesses or that uh, you know, sort of living large as we did in the eighties. Yeah, that's certainly one positive way or a positive aspect of that. Yeah, let's. Uh, Let's try to take that one positive spin from Reaganomics. <laughs> yeah, birthed a lot of great pop culture. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Ho, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. So how'd that interview go? It went very well. Um, Ho Che is, I mean, he's a great writer and uh, illustrator, um, and you should definitely check out his books, uh, including Godhead and King. And he proved, I guess I have to tell you this, Right. Well, I'll tell you this. You should tell me something. Yeah, I'm going to tell you that after the interview, just moments after the interview here, I got an email from Hoche that says that he agrees that uh, now the 80s were objectively the best decade for comics. So without... So so can I do it? Yes, please. Now that you Uh, have all the information you need. Now that I've had all the information, (laughs) here we go. We have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that the 1980s comic scene was better than any other decade objectively objectively yes i've started adding that in just i see yeah i don't believe it but yeah okay well you know we're gonna have to have a separate podcast where i prove to you (laughs) that it was object that the 80s were objectively true wait that's the whole point of this all right well well (laughs) no that's your point oh i'm here because the 80s were awesome i like this we're ending on a cliffhanger (laughs) where maybe there's going to be a split up and there'll be two podcasts next week well you know i can't work any of the equipment so i can't do my own yours would be a very quiet podcast i would just be standing on the corner screaming (laughs) at people like a lunatic (laughs) just like any other tuesday (laughs) All right, we'll talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya.